Sunday. Uh, just a side note, re, we won't be in here next Wednesday. We'll be over there uh, with Vacation Bible School going on. So also uh, this Sunday evening, we're not going to have Sunday school uh, there because of uh, Vacation Bible School and preparations and getting ready and all that good stuff. So um, just wanted to give you a heads up on that, okay? All right, Isaiah chapter 28, and we will go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will study the Word of God together. Father, we love you and we adore you. We thank you so much that we have the opportunity to open your word. We don't have to hope, think, speculate about what you want us to know. You've uh, given it to us in your eternal word. I just ask you, Lord, that you would help us tonight, that we would focus, that we would be able to understand clearly the meaning of your word that it might change us for your honor and your glory. We pray that as we go through this study, that you will teach us the truths that we need to know. We ask you to be with the workers and the teachers and the children across the street. And as we always pray, we want you to do something incredible, something in and through this church for your glory. And Lord, I might add that Help us daily to strive to make our lives about you. That we might be about Jesus Christ and his glory. Again, I ask you for your help as we study. And as I teach, I pray you would help me, enable me. We love you. And it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. And amen. Isaiah chapter 28, it's a long book, we've been going through it, uh, chapters 28 and I think all the way up through 33 are entitled the woes, the woes, woe is, the Bible knowledge commentary says, a woe is a meaning of interjection suggestive of impending doom or grief, so when you see these woes, it's about to get real and someone's going to pay the price. Disobedience has consequences. Disbelief has consequences. Um, Jesus Christ, uh, the Lord of all glory, is very adamant about His Word. God the Father is adamant about His Word. God the Holy Spirit is adamant about His Word. And we must take it to heart. We must not only revere His Word, but we must believe and obey His Word. Look with me in verse 1 of chapter 28. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valleys, to those who are overcome with wine. This passage of scripture, Isaiah is dealing with the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom, the capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria. Uh, Samaria at this time was a beautiful place. In verse 1 it says, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower. It also says, which is at the head of the verdant valleys, which is the valley of fatness, which means that it is a very significant place. It was beautiful. It said on the hilltop. But Isaiah pronounces a woe to this area of Samaria, the northern kingdom. Why would he do that? 
Well, he references the crown of pride. This word crown actually means literally a wreath. Materially, I guess I should say material prosperity was great there in the northern kingdom. They thought everything was going well. They'd made an alliance with a foreign enemy to protect them, not knowing that the Assyrian army was about to wipe them out. What were they doing? Well, they were relishing in their pride and in their drunkenness. Now, it's interesting, as I look at this passage of Scripture, he says, Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valleys, to those who are overcome with wine. Was it their drunkenness that led to their pride, or was it their pride that led to their drunkenness? Well, it was yes and both. They went hand in hand. There are many reasons why people get drunk. Sometimes people get drunk because their sorrow is too great to handle. And just for a few moments, the drunkenness could take away the sorrow, but all too often they discover when they wake up from their drunken stupor that the problem is still there. Another reason people get drunk, sometimes they get drunk because they're celebration of circumstances, because things are good. They're celebrating life. We're eating and drinking and we're merry and we're having a good time. We're living it up. Hence the spring breaks that go on around the world and etc. And then lastly, sometimes people get drunk because they are addicted. I'm sure you came here tonight wanting to hear about what Isaiah was woe and prophesying to this nation and not to hearing about drunkenness. But in all these broad categories of drunkenness, three things emerge and stand out. Number one, drunkenness takes away our need for the Lord. You say, what would you think that? Well, many people turn to the bottle to get rid of their sorrow, to handle their sorrow. And in lieu of going to the Lord and trusting Him and solving the problem that way, it's too great they think in the flesh that they turn to the bottle. So in the Bible, drunkenness was taking away the need for the Lord. The second problem is drunkenness takes away our accountability. Someone who is under the control of alcohol cares nothing about accountability. People who are drunk would say things that they normally would not say when they're sober. Is that the truth? Sure, it's the truth. Sure, it's the truth. And then lastly, temporarily it takes away from the realness of life. We live in a virtual uh, society. We live in a fake fantasy society. How many of you remember the, the show Fantasy Island, right? De plane, de plane. Yes, you remember that. And we virtually are living in a fantasy island where people, rather than playing tennis, can play tennis with eye glasses on. Rather than playing golf, and actually literally playing golf, they stay in their living room and do it with goggles on. They box. They do all these things. We live in a fake society. 
the big buzz on television now is called reality TV, which is not reality. It's not the real world. It's not the real world. And many a times people turn to the bottle to temporarily take them away from reality. It's interesting the Bible says that in Roman or excuse me in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18 it says be not drunk with wine wherein is excess but be filled with the spirit. Be filled with the spirit is a continual action it means be being filled with the spirit. There is a contrast made in the Bible between being controlled by alcohol and being controlled by the Holy Spirit and if you know anything about contrasts it is evidently clear that one cannot be under the influence of alcohol and be controlled by the Holy Spirit at the same time. It cannot happen. It's in, uh, it is in contrast one to the other. We've all seen the effects and maybe seen them firsthand. Drunkenness and the problems it causes. As a pastor, I've seen the families that have been destroyed, the lives that have been wrecked because of drunkenness. Nowhere in the Bible does God put his stamp of approval on the sin of drunkenness. And we're about to see that in their drunkenness, they had become proud. And because of their, proud, proud, uh, their pride, I should say, they become drunkards. They, became, they thought everything was fine. They had entered into this covenant with this foreign nation. They had forsaken God. They've turned to little gods, little G-O-D-S. They thought everything was fine. So they're going to have a big party and they're going to live it up. How many of you remember in Daniel the story of Belshazzar's feast? They were in there partying and they were drinking and carrying on and the handwriting came on the wall. That very hour... They did not know it, but the armies had dammed the river, came up through the river. They were surrounded, and that night they took possession in, in their drunkenness. So to me, the northern kingdom was saying to God, we don't need you. We don't need you, God. We'll take care of this ourselves. Secondly, they were saying we're not accountable to you. And we, thirdly, we can just do fine on our own. To me, that is the height of arrogance and foolishness. And it doesn't end well for them. The only problem with this is it's false narrative. You know, the Bible talks about don't look at the alcohol when it's red and it moves awry. You know why? It's a liar. It's a liar. It lies to you. There's a little fellow that's one of, my, <laughs> one of my son's friends, and he was telling me, we were talking back around church camp, and he said, yeah, our pastor was gone, and our assistant pastor made a mistake. I said, yeah. He said, he actually messed up and actually gave us real wine for communion. And I'm thinking, how do you accidentally give real wine for communion? The only thing I can ascertain is that maybe there was real wine for the adults and grape juice for the kids, and somehow it got juxtaposed and, well, can you imagine? Could you imagine? 
Alcohol lies to you, just as it lied to the northern kingdom. They thought their alliance with these pagan nations would keep them safe from the the Assyrian invasion, but it didn't. Just like someone stumbles into his or her vehicle to drive home after a night of drunkenness, thinking, I can surely make it home without incidents. How many precious lives have been taken because alcohol lied to that person? God would use the Assyrian army to judge the northern kingdom severely. Look at verse 2. Behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one. This is the Assyrian army, the empire. Like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with his hand. The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, will be trampled underfoot. And the glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valley. Like the first fruit before the summer, which an observer sees, he heats it up, he eats it up while it's still in his hand. All the while they're drinking, they're reveling in their pride, they're going on, they're putting their feelings over the facts of the Word of God. And you'll see to the depths that it goes in just a moment, the arrogance and the pride that they had. Interestingly enough to me, have you ever thought about this? When we as believers live in the flesh and we get caught up in a sin and we think that no one knows our sin and we can do it and get away with it, isn't that pride telling us we can get away with it? We forget all about an all-seeing, all-knowing, ever-present God. That He knows everything, He sees everything, and we cannot hide from Him. It's the height of arrogance thinking that we can do something and hide it from God. Verse 5, Isaiah points to the millennial kingdom. He's back and forth in this. How do we know? Well, the things that are fulfilled were immediate prophecy. When he wrote this, everything was in the future. But some of it has been fulfilled and some of it has not. What has not been fulfilled is yet future is still prophetic in nature. What has been fulfilled has been fulfilled. Verse 5, In that day the Lord of hosts, pointing again to the millennial kingdom, for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty, Samaria was not the crown of pride. In their minds, they thought they were the crown of pride. They thought they were beauty. No, the crown belongs to the Lord. He alone is beautiful. He alone is the wearer of the diadem of beauty. To the remnant of His people, that believing remnant that would not be swayed by this pride and arrogancy and this riotous living. For a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. In verses 7 and 8, he returns back to the drunkards. 
but they also have erred through wine. And through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. The prophet was prophesying while he was drunk, and he was prophesying <laughs> drunkenness versus the real message of God. How could he do that? He's a prophet of God. He's no prophet. He declared himself to be a prophet. He declared himself to be a priest, but through their drunkenness. And, and might I say, some interpret this uh, symbolically, but with the number of references to the drink, I think it's very much so talking about the actual intoxication, actual drinking. It's not talking about uh, symbolically. They're swallowed up by wine. They're out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in their vision. They stumble in judgment. For all the tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. Wow. It's not a very uh, uh, desirable banquet to attend, is it? Vomit all over the tables. Oh, we're having a great day. It always cracked me up, man. Man, we had a great time last night, as says the guy, hugging the toilet, throwing up. Doesn't make sense to me. But he says they err in their vision. They stumble in their judgment. Why? Because they were, they were prophesying in drunkenness. And in the northern kingdom, no place is clean. This drunkenness and this pride had taken complete control over Samaria, the capital city. Verses 9 through 13, we have Ephraim, or Samaria's, refusal to believe and repent. Look at verse 9. Whom will he teach knowledge? And whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just drawn from the breasts? These people have the audacity to say about Isaiah, you're treating us like children. Do you know who we are? We're prophets and we're priests and we're Jews. Who gives you the right to talk to us like we're mere children? Look at the verse 10, this next phrase. For precept must be upon precept, precept on precept, line upon line, line upon line, here little, there little. It's as if Isaiah was talking baby talk to them. Do and do, do and do. Rule on, rule on, rule on, rule on. In the Hebrew, this is a series of sounds. They're mocking Isaiah's message. The leaders were acting as if he were an adult lecturing children. And which the best response I've ever heard someone say one time, Why do you treat us like children? And the, the man responded, Why are you acting like children? <laughs> 
A little here, a little there was a teaching method used in teaching the Hebrew children. In other words, they were refusing to take Isaiah's words seriously. They wanted nothing to do with his message or his ministry. But let me remind you, Isaiah is representing God to the people. His message is not Isaiah's message. His message is the message of God. And when you, in the Old Testament, when you rejected the prophet of God, a genuine prophet, and his message, you were rejecting God and God's message. Isn't that the way it is in the world today? People scoff at Christianity. I never believed I would live in such a mean-spirited church or, or um, uh, age in the day we live. Not the church, excuse me. That was a little foo-paw there, faux-paw. I was at the golf course one day and I had driven the ball and it was lying next to the pond. It didn't go in the pond, hallelujah. And as I walked up, there were a... Was it a gaggle of geese or a gant? What do they call them? A gaggle of geese? Gaggle of geese there? There's a bunch of them. How's that? Hillbilly. And I walked up and there were some babies. And as I got close, this goose turned at me and went and hissed at me. And I'm thinking, if I can get my driver in my hands, I'm going to drive your head. Now, why do I tell you that? There was a pastor in West Virginia who was invited to speak and to pray at the. Speak House of Representatives in West Virginia. Knowing that he would be there, knowing his stance, he was met with a community, the LBQT community. They were there, and when he got up to pray and he walked by, he said they were hissing at him. Literally hissing. He said, I never in my life had someone hiss at me. Animal behavior, that's the world today. That's the world we live in. They do not want the Word of God. They reject the Word of God. They reject the God of the Word. And that's exactly what's happening in Isaiah's day. He's standing there, and these drunkards say, Don't you lecture us like children. We don't care what you say. And in verses 11 through 13, Isaiah tells them, If you don't want to listen to my message, you're going to hear someone else's message through a foreign tongue. A foreign tongue is going to take you, and you're going to listen to him. Look at verse 11. With the stammering lips, another tongue. Those foreigners were going to come in. They didn't want to hear from God, so God is sending Assyria as his agent of judgment upon the nation of the northern kingdom. He will speak to his people to whom he said, This is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. Isaiah says, you won't listen to me. These foreigners are going to come in, and you will have to listen to them. But the word of the Lord was to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, Line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. 
Oh, please hear me out. Just for a few moments, listen to me. They turned from the living God. And they turned to the bottle. And they turned to these false gods. And everything was great in their lives. They were thinking they had made an alliance. They thought they were going to be great. But they weren't. Because they rejected the Word of God, which in turn means they rejected the God of the Word. This was no mere occasional social drinking. This was drunkards. They were constantly reveling in their wisdom and their pride. We don't need God. We got this alliance with these other countries, and Assyria will not attack us. And Isaiah stands and he prophesies to them the word of God, and he pleads with them, and they won't listen. They won't listen. God says, listen. Isaiah, say your peace because the judgment is about to fall on them. They've been warned and they're backing up into the snare. Verse 14, Isaiah, therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Now he turns from the northern kingdom to Judah, the southern kingdom, because it had traveled from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom. Now listen to me. Please hear this out. In the day we live, evil spreads seemingly at a faster rate than does good. Many people have been sucked into evil thinking that they're better than what they are, but they were drawn in. So now his, his attention is on Judah, the southern kingdom. Why? Because he's already given the message to the northern kingdom that they're done. God's judgment is falling. So he turns to the southern kingdom. And he says, verse 15, Because you have said we made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we are in agreement with the overflowing scourge passes through. They too made an alliance. But yet, there's a future alliance I want to call your attention to that's most staggering. Because God's judgment would come upon the southern kingdom, but Jerusalem would be protected and not, they would, God would allow them to go all the way up to Jerusalem, but not take Jerusalem. Why? There will be another covenant that takes place. In uh, Daniel chapter 9, Verse 27, we see this covenant. The covenant is between the Antichrist and Israel. Verse 27, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. This one week actually means a period of seven years. This covenant between the Antichrist and Israel at the beginning of the tribulation period where Israel will think that because they're tied with the Antichrist, they're going to be okay. But guess what? It's a false covenant. It's a false covenant. He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. 
Three and one half years into that seven-year covenant, he will break the covenant. He will walk into the temple and he will demand to be worshipped. Israel will be duped by the Antichrist. Oh, there's a lesson here. The lesson is this. Don't look from man or any other source what you can only get from God. Don't look for any other sources for what you can only get from God. They made a covenant, which was a covenant of death and sheol hell. Some translates the grave. When the overflowing, verse 15, when the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge. Under falsehood, we have hidden ourselves. What they thought they were getting, they're not getting. Just like what you think you're getting when you booze it up, you're not getting what you think you're getting. When they have all these wonderful commercials on television, it doesn't show you the homes destroyed. It doesn't show you the person sitting in prison who killed a family of four on the road who really wasn't a bad person, but that alcohol took over. They don't show you any of that stuff. They only show you the crown of pride. He goes on, verse 16, Therefore says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation. You know what the solution to this covenant that's broken in the tribulation period is the millennial king. Who is the stone? Jesus. Jesus is the stone. There are many references in the Bible to this. I, I, I don't have all night to take you to all of them, but maybe Zechariah 10.4, I, I think we have that up there. 10.4 says this, From him comes the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler together. Ephesians 2.20 teaches us, and I think again it's on the board there, so I'll move quickly, you can write it down, uh, the television thing, whatever it is. 2.20 Having built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 16, we read of that cornerstone. I'm in one. That didn't make sense. There we go. Two. As free. That's not it. I wrote the wrong one down. But at any rate, 2-6, that's what it should be. Is that 2-6? You got it. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay a Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Right there. That's the message Isaiah was delivering to them. That's the message that they rejected. That's the message 
that when Jesus came to his own and his own received him not, they would not believe. They would not believe Isaiah, so therefore they would not believe God. And the judgment of God comes upon them. And the only solution to this judgment of God being poured out on them is the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Verse 17, also I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plummet. The hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overflow the hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. Why? Because they're all false covenants. They're birthed in lies. Who's the father of lies? The devil. Verse 19, as often as it goes out, it will take you. For morning by morning it will pass over, and day by day it will be a terror just to understand the report. And Isaiah says, as a matter of fact, it's like uh, trying to sleep in a bed that's too short. Never had that problem. But it's a pretty significant problem. Or trying to cover up under a blanket that's too short. Now, I have had that problem. I don't know who... I mean, do jockeys make blankets nowadays? I don't know. I mean, I'm short and I, I can never find one that goes from here to beyond your feet. Who's with me? Right? You get it up here, your feet hang out. You get it down there, your neck hangs out. I don't know. May I say, dude, I got a new seat for you Sunday morning right here. <laughs> Verse 21, for the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim. He will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon. In other words, all the way down to the valley where um, David defeated Goliath. That he may do his work, his awesome work, and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. Verse 22, here it is. Now therefore, do not be mockers, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts the destruction determined even upon the whole earth. Don't mock God. you still got time to change it. You still have time to repent. You still have time to turn to the Lord. Galatians 6, 7 says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my speech. Does the plowman keep plowing all day to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods? When he has leveled its surface, does he not sow the black cumin and scatter the cumin, plant the wheat in rows, the barley in an appointed place, and spelt in its place? For he instructs him in right judgment, his God teaches him. In other words, God knows exactly, just like you place the cumin in one place and you place the wheat in another place, they're all together, harvested differently. God knows how to deal with whoever and however. 
He knows how to deal with the, the northern kingdom. He knows how to deal with the southern kingdom. The farmer cannot, he cannot just go out there and throw seed down. The soil has to be prepared. The seed has to go into the ground, and the Bible teaches us it has to die before it's resurrected. Various crops must be treated differently. And in the same way, God will bring about judgment, but not forever. He lets them know that it's not going to be forever. We are told that, uh, historically speaking, that when they did ascend against the southern kingdom, that they came all the way up, but God stopped them from going into Jerusalem. Verse 29, this also comes from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. The southern kingdom had time to submit to him because he's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. He is excellent in his guidance. He would never lead someone contrary to what's best for them according to his will. So I would say two points of application as we finish up here. Number one, don't let anything or anyone control you but God. Please hear me out. I stand before you and we all have problems. I have problems. You have problems. Everybody has problems. But you know what our number one problem is? The greatest question we have to answer every day is who's going to control me? Is it God or is it someone else? This is the essence of Christianity. We surrender ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. I would say secondly, listen and obey the word of God. Because disobedience has consequences. Please listen. In this day and age we live in, we think that we can do whatever and we, we can just you know get right with God and everything will be forgiven. Yes, it will be forgiven. But there are still consequences for disobedience. Forgiveness is available, but there are consequences for disobedience. And I, I tell you this, church, and, and I mean this with all my heart. Our struggle is not with what we don't know. It's with what we know. And we allow so many things continually to press upon us. And those things have a way of wiggling themselves in between us and God. And I say to you, if we could, in His power, in His Spirit... Surrender afresh and new every day and resolve to Him, 
His being God, Lord over us. The Lordship of Christ, submitting to Him daily. Our lives. Not easy, but will be so much better. and So much more enjoyable. Yet, time after time, day after day, week after week, month after month, we play fast and loose with God's grace. Don't do that. Don't do that. If you're struggling, turn to the Lord. I promise you this. He, more than anyone, already knows you're struggling. He knows it. Turn to Him. Vow in your heart, in sincerity and honesty, and in humility, asking Him for His help and His strength and His Spirit to get you through. Don't turn to the things of the world seeking for what you can only get through God. Can we pray?